Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway of the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, April 11th, 2008. I'm Adrian Burke. While some of the old accoutrements on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange continue to function as curious anachronisms, the modern stock market is a multinational, digitized institution whose activities often occur in rooms where the only sounds are the tap-tap of a computer keyboard. A roundtable discussion at the Philoctetes Center for the Interdisciplinary Study of Imagination asked recently, how have technological innovations hastened the growth of the markets. Greed and fear of loss are still primary human motives in stock market trading, but how do technological advances interact with fluctuations eventuated by purely human drives? Justin Fox, business and economics columnist for Time magazine, moderated the discussion. Participants were Bernard L. Madoff, past chairman of the NASDAQ Board of Directors, Elsa Roel, a professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. Robert A. Schwartz, professor of finance in the Zicklin School of Business at Baruch College, CUNY. Muriel Siebert, the first woman to own a seat on the New York Stock Exchange and the first to head one of its member firms. And Josh Stampfley, head of the automated market-making group at Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities. So we're going to talk about the future of the stock market, which I think of necessity will require us to talk about the past and the present. Um, And we have a really cool panel here of people who, most of them are are extremely specialized in certain areas of the market. And so this is going to be this sort of getting specialist. I'm a generalist. I assume most of you guys are generalists, not market microstructure experts. Um, and, and so it's going to be a challenge, but I think it's going to be this really wonderful opportunity to make a little more sense of these things we read in the financial pages than we normally do. And, and so I, what I want to – well, why don't I just introduce everybody, and then I'll start asking questions, and you'll see where we're going to start. Our panel to my left is Elsa Roel, who's a professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University School of International Public Affairs, and her specialty is financial economics. And in the past, she'd done a lot of work on regulation of financial markets. Lately, she's working more on corporate governance matters. Um, to her left is Bob Schwartz, the Marvin M. Spicer Professor of Finance and University Distinguished Professor in the Zicklin School of Business at Brook College, CUNY. I have to say, university titles are even more complicated than um, magazine ones. Yeah. <laughs> His research is also in the area of financial economics, with a primary focus on the structure of securities markets. To his left is Muriel Mickey Siebert, who runs Muriel Siebert and Company, a brokerage. She was the first woman to own a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and what year was that that you bought that? The summer 28, 1967. And we're going to get back to that in a minute because I think it was, I think the market was a little different then than it is today. A little bit. Um, She also served during a really interesting time as uh, superintendent of banking for the state of New York, basically right when the banking industry was first kind of coming to terms with this whole new world of financial markets, and a lot of banks were struggling with it. Um, To her left is Bernie Madoff, who's the chairman of Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, LLC, which he founded in 1960. 
that may that may name may not say a lot to you, but you go over to Madoff and you talk to Bernie and he mentions, oh, by the way, 10% of stocks traded in the United States are going through this firm right now. Um, it's it's one of those really important parts of our financial system that doesn't show up in the headlines that most people don't outside of markets don't understand the role it plays, but it's a major factor in American and global financial markets today. And next to him is Josh Stampley, who's the head of automated market making group at Bernard Madoff Investment Securities. He designed the I'm going to just read the sentence right here because it's so beautiful. He designed the trading logic to manage position risk and handle the order flow inherent to the firm's business of providing liquidity to its customers. He's going to explain what that means. (laughs) But I want to start with Mickey Siebert. Just when did you first arrive on Wall Street? Well, I moved from Cleveland to New York, and I'm a college dropout with 18 honorary doctorates. (laughs) Uh, December 1954 from Cleveland, Ohio. And what, I mean, when people talked about Wall Street then, was it really all down around Wall Street? It was down around Wall Street. I had been to New York once before on vacation, which included a tour of the balcony. (laughs) And I said, this looks exciting. Uh, Maybe if I ever move to New York, I'd like to work down here. And when you said, did you work on the exchange immediately? Or no, no, no. Actually, I applied to the UN for a job first because my mother was the youngest of 11 children. They were all born in Hungary. They came here in three tranches. And my Uncle Ben's oldest son was one of our representatives to the UN. So I applied there for a job. Thank God I was not accepted. (laughs) I would have been a messenger girl with fallen arches. And then I applied to Merrill Lynch. And they said college degree, and I had to say no. And they said no job. So the next day I applied to Bates. They said college degree. I said yes. And I kept that lie going till I put the bid card in for the seat, which I bought because I wanted to be paid equally. And as I understand it, the people at the stock exchange didn't exactly bend over backwards to help you with that. They did not welcome me with open arms. Right. But uh, I had been a partner of a small firm, a couple of small firms, and I was doing research. And I had a following in instant from institutions. I had become the first woman member of the Wings Club. I used to specialize in aviation stocks. And uh, when you're from a small firm, you can prove it's your business. Right. If, you go, if you're from a Merrill Lynch, is it their business or your business? And, so, and so why did you feel you needed to have an actual seat on the stock exchange? I wanted to be paid equally, and I asked a client of mine, you'll know him, Bernie, Jerry Sai, mm-hmm. gave me the idea, the Chinese money manager. Mm-hmm. And I said, Jerry, what firm can I go to where I'll be paid equally? He said, don't be ridiculous, you won't. Buy a seat, work for yourself. I said, don't you be ridiculous. And he said, I don't think there's a law against it. And at that time, all of the, the trading, I mean, was, was anything automated yet by, by late nothing, 60s? Nothing no? was. 
they had started about that time the DOT system, direct order turnaround, which was started originally for small orders, uh, which enabled, uh, it really took hold when discount brokerage started, which was May 1st, 1975. And before that, you could, you had to charge a certain commission? You had to. The commissions were fixed. And, and you were one of the pioneers in saying, okay, I, we'll I started as what I called an execution-only broker day one. I was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. What does that mean, execution-only? We, I stopped doing research. Okay, At that it. time, I had three or four analysts that did research. And we stopped because there were two laws coming together at one time. Uh, if one had come in and then the other one, but it was the two laws. One that said commissions could be negotiable. And the other one was ERISA, which at the time we called everything ridiculous invented since Adam. <laughs> in that, Congress, they call it the employment Retirement. Yes, it said that if you were a fiduciary, you had to get the best execution at the lowest cost. Got it. Now, without the negotiated rates, we were all charging the same. It would have been a non-event. But it was those two laws coming together. And the head of Manufacturers Hanover Trust Department had said to me, you know, we've been having meetings. How are we going to continue to pay for research? And that's when I decided that whenever you see a change of that magnitude, there's got to be an opportunity. Um, somebody else who saw an opportunity in oh, all the boy. changes going on. I take my hat off to him. Well, describe your your history. You um, started your firm in 1960? Or? 1960, correct. And what did it do initially? Because that's before all this change happened. So. <coughs> At that time, we started what was an over-the-counter dealing firm, uh, primarily just making markets and trading in over-the-counter stocks. Uh, I've got to stop you because I think this is a phrase that's going to come up a lot. What is making a market? Well, <clears throat> making a market is the over-the-counter dealer equivalent of a specialist on the floor of an exchange. It means providing a two-sided, quoted market to other dealers so that if you wanted to buy let's say Intel, uh, and you went, to, you went to your broker and you said, buy me you know, 500 shares of Intel, he would take that order and execute it by going to any number of, of other brokerage firms who were called wholesalers, like myself, that provided a ready market for that stock by risking our own capital. So we would, we would provide liquidity to Merrill Lynch, by offering him the, the stock at a quoted price, or buying stock at a quoted price. If you ordered, if you executed an order in IBM at that same time, you would take that order in those days to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and that order would be executed with a specialist who is also a market maker, but primarily trading on the floor of the exchange in a franchise that he was given by the exchange in a, a number of stocks. So you'd be doing it for stocks that weren't on the New York Exchange? In those days, right. correct. Correct. And then what? So obviously th things developed over the next two decades. What? Well, I guess from our standpoint, uh, we started the firm in 1960. In 1970, uh, 
And in those days, over-the-counter stocks were traded always over the telephone with no automation. So you would call a broker. The broker would, would call up over the telephone any number of dealers like myself, and there were hundreds of dealers around the country that were making these markets. And it was, it was an arduous process of saying, okay, where can I buy 100 shares of Intel or 100 shares of Apple, which, of course, didn't exist at that day, nor did Intel. Uh, and uh, we, would, we would negotiate over the telephone. Uh, and the, if you wanted to, there was, if you wanted to see what the price of the stock was, uh, there was a publication that came out daily that was just circulated throughout the brokerage industry called the ping sheets. It was just a, a stack of sheets this long, this wide, that basically, right, that would basically list all of the dealers like myself that were willing to make a market in that security and the prices that we were willing to trade the security at. And, of course, that was a day old, so it really didn't mean much. All it did was it was a phone directory of telephone numbers. Uh, And that was the way the business was done for for many years. We, in about 1971, uh, automation was, people were interested in technology. I mean, computers were basically just sort of uh, showing up and being used at that time. So... We saw, meaning my brother and, and myself, uh, that there was an opportunity to bring automation into the over-the-counter marketplace and create some visibility, transparency in the marketplace. So we came up with the concept of developing a screen-based uh, trading mechanism where prices would, be, would appear on a, on a computer screen. Uh, and that was the that was the uh, start of Nasdaq. So there were five firms: ourselves, uh, Allen and Company, Merrill Lynch, the old Prudential, Bache, uh, and Goldman Sachs. This got together and went to the NESD, which was called the National Association of Securities Dealers, made a proposal to build a screen-based trading system, which then became Nasdaq. And that was a, and then that went through various stages of automation, so that you were able to, uh, you know, l- turn on your computer screen at any brokerage firm in the country. It listed all the dealers that were willing to trade the security and the prices, and then eventually that went on to where you could actually execute the trades automatically. Uh, and at that time, that was the literally the only automated trading environment that existed in the world. Uh, everything else was floor-based systems uh, that were, where there was a central marketplace. Um, and, and in terms of it, the NASDAQ, obviously, by the 90s, everybody knew about it. Was that partly, I would imagine it was relatively, it was, more, it was smaller, more obscure companies, but a lot just sort of stuck with it as it grew? Yes, it, it originally, not, well, the over-the-counter market primarily uh, was a marketplace that had smaller companies that did not qualify for listing on the New York Stock Exchange. But at that time, 90% of all corporate bonds that traded in the United States were traded over-the-counter, and all currencies trade over-the-counter. I mean, the over-the-counter market is far larger uh, than, than any exchange market, uh, basically than all the exchange markets, you know, put together. Uh, but most people looked at the over-the-counter market as being a marketplace for sort of unseasoned companies uh, at that time. 
and NASDAQ was uh, lucky enough to basically be the home of all the technology companies in the United States. So companies like Apple, Intel, Microsoft, MCI. I know I sound like a salesman from, uh, for, for NASDAQ, but that's, you know, that's what, what gave right. me whatever success we achieved. So uh, those, those securities all had a home in NASDAQ. And those securities, for the most part, never left NASDAQ even when they qualified for listing on the New York. Now, Bob, you've been, how long have you been studying the structure of markets, how they've been put together? I knew you were going to ask me that. And I'm sitting here thinking, God, I never incorporated. I, I never went for a job interview to study markets. When did I get started? I, I, in the 70s, 1970s. Was that? Early 70s. Was there... Had there been a lot of academic interest in it before, or was that a relatively new field? It was, it was new, and it was lonely. <laughs> and all my buddies would say, we're modeling price uh, setting. We're modeling what a stock should be trading at, given its risk and the capital asset pricing models and that sort of stuff. And you're looking at bid-ask spreads, an eighth of a point, 12 and a half cents. It was not only lonely, it was a little bit uh, negative to what we were doing. And then, of course, you don't study something if it's, if it's just a totally efficient market. What's there to study? And you can't publish a paper saying, well, some people did, actually. <laughs> there, there were a lot of tests of what was called the efficient markets hypothesis, that stock price movements are... The changes are uncorrelated, that they follow what we call random walks. That's a pretty common term, I, I think, especially on Third Avenue after a happy hour. But, uh, <laughs> you know, then, then we started looking at this data, and in those days it was very hard to study the markets because a big benefit of electronic trading is it gives you the data. We have, you know, all the intraday, they call it high-frequency data. Uh, our high-frequency data were collected by hand by doctoral students, uh, slaves. <laughs> that, you know, would arduously build up a database. But we started looking at daily data in, in special way, me and a couple of co-authors, and we saw evidence of inefficiency and tried to get those papers published. It wasn't easy. So I, I sort of slid into it, but I was at NYU at the time. I was there for many years, and NYU at that time was right next to the American Stock Exchange. So it was very easy, and as I say, just across the graveyard from the NYSE. So it was, it was easy to go and visit those markets and see what was happening. And, and Bernie, you know, I grew up near the exchanges. And I was always more sensitive to the exchange type of markets than the OTC market. But, of course, the issues uh, are, span both of them. So I, I sort of, you know, my research topics got me into it. The topic didn't have a name then. There was a paper by Mark Garman that Elsa knows that came out called How He Came to I've Met Mark. Uh, but I never asked him, how did he get that name? But it's just the, the title of a paper. And a bunch of this us... This market microstructure? Market microstructure. It's a, it's a very good paper, the pioneer. But 
a bunch of us, it turns out, start working on related topics, and we got in touch with each other, and we came together and said, help, well, you know, we, you need friends in this lonely field. And um, we decided one day, uh, about four of us at a room at NYU, if we're going to coalesce interest in this topic, we have to give it a name. And Mark Gorman's paper title sounded like a great one. And it miraculously uh, stuck. And when I talked to you yesterday, Justin, I said, you know the term microstructure? You said, yes, you made my day. <laughs> but I, I, I said I knew the term. I don't really know what it means. Um, <laughs> You're like my students. Exactly. Well, and I guess, I mean, my initial thought is, so does this, when you're studying market microstructure, does it mean there's a big difference between the way people arrive at prices on the floor of the exchange or on the NASDAQ or, I mean, depending how you set up the system? Yeah, that's a a very good example. Um, My background is economics. I'm not a finance from through the Ph.D., it's a very different area, but I, my first years at, at NYU, I taught microeconomics. Microeconomics, if you think of it, has a lot to do with markets. But how intensely do you put the microscope on the markets and look at the real details of what's going on? With microstructure, we are looking at those details, the orders that come in, how are they handled? What mechanism are they brought to? Is it, is it to Bernie or Muriel or the exchange? How, how does that work? How are they translated into prices, uh, trade prices? And how do the prices behave? And, and it all feeds back, for me, to market structure. I, I care a lot about how you structure a market to perform better. Well, have we structured? I mean, in this great transformation of our markets over the past 40 years, is it set up to perform better? Well, the intention is always to perform better. And, uh, yeah, in lots of ways it is better. And when you talk about screen-based trading and that sort of thing, the transparency is, you know, when I look at the markets today, and I, I go back, I was around in the 70s, I still hate to think, what were they really like then? And that is the era when academic, I'm glad that Elsa's here because you can, support me, it's us against a lot of colleagues, Uh, we're all touting the efficient markets hypothesis. And I think a big reason why is that my my PhD is from Columbia. And when you get a PhD in economics, you've got to fall in love with the free market. We're we're very free market people, uh, lots of us. And if if you're in favor of the free markets, because the free market gives you good results, well, but when you start studying actual markets, nothing's that perfect. It just plain isn't. And the imperfections in the, in the exchange market add up to a lot of dollars. Some win, some lose. But is it really good for us collectively? I think the answer is no. Now, is, are the markets really that efficient today? Let's put it this way. I think I have a lot more work that should be done. I'm not ready to get on to a different topic or retire. Well, that, that, and I assume you aren't either, Elsa. Um, I guess that, and I, you can take this sort of wherever you want, but my thought is, are we moving towards markets that get closer to the right price than we used to because of all this, this change toward more electronic trading or not? Um, I do think that that the electronics has made it possible to bring together 
quotes and orders from such, from a very large group of people, a much larger group than before, instantaneously. And so in that sense, we have a more a better chance to find the right price. Now, uh, in terms of talking about is the market more efficient than it used to be, um, there's some, uh, you know, there are different definitions of, of efficiency. I do think the market has become informationally more efficient, that it brings information together better. It has become operationally more efficient in the sense that the costs of performing the transactions have fallen dramatically, both through the electronics and through the deregulation of commissions that Muriel was talking about. Um, What I do think, though, is that still uh, at this time there are always conflicts of interest between different groups of of actors in the market, the intermediaries, the small customers, the, the big pension funds, different constituencies have different ways to, to, to profit and to some extent there is some um, uh, back and forth in the, in, in the sense that one constituency may gain from a change that others may lose from. So we're trying to be on the Pareto frontier as it were but I think there's still some issues as to the divisions of gains and, and losses. What's the Pareto frontier? With Pareto frontier, I just mean that you can't really make that many people better off without making someone else worse off. Right. Okay, so we're, we're there, but the division of the gains. Justin, I, I want to say something. The, uh, Bob was not a very popular person on Wall Street when he first started looking at these <laughs> subjects. You have to understand that Wall Street is one big turf war. So, as Elsa just said, by benefiting one person, you're disadvantaging another person. And the basic concept of Wall Street, which sometimes the regulators lose sight of, and as do the academics, is it's a for-profit enterprise. Uh, you know, in every aspect of it, the person that, that is buying a share of stock is convinced he knows something that the other person who's selling it to him does not know. Uh, there's no zero-sum game in, in, in Wall Street. So when Bob first started to look at market structure, whether it be macro market structure or micro-macro structure, and he started asking questions of the established ways that business was done in Wall Street, no one wanted to deal with that because everybody was very happy uh, with the way things were. Mm-hmm. You know, commission rates were, were you know, 80% higher than they presently are today. Uh, everybody was making a very good living. Regulatory. So commissions have, even since deregulation, obviously at deregulation they dropped a ton, but they've kept dropping since then? Well, they've gone down to virtually nothing. So what you have now outside of, outside of Mickey and a number of firms, other discount firms like hers, nobody really wants to do retail business any longer because nobody wants to do business for, for five cents a share. Uh, when it used to be 75 cents a share. And Wall Street, so just so you understand the scope of it, is one of the few industries where, where the cost of doing business for the consumer has gone down dramatically from a commission standpoint. Uh, the, yet the expenses of doing business from the industries 
perspective has dramatically increased. And the cost of regulation has dramatically increased. Now, no one's going to run a benefit for Wall Street. So whenever, <laughs> so, so whenever I go down to Washington and meet with the SEC and complain to them that the industry is either overregulated or the burdens are too great, they all start to roll their eyes, just like all of our children do whenever we talk about the good old days. Uh, so... Uh, but that being said, even though Wall Street has resisted these changes, they, they made the changes, you know, yes. not easily. But sure. the, the academic community uh, that started to, to look at, you know, the structures of the marketplaces uh, and, and people like, like Mickey, uh, who started uh, really the, the whole movement towards negotiated uh, rates and and the the the, uh, the discount type of an of an operation were the driving forces that caused that. And people blame me for a lot of this because we were the ones that started the automated trading and that were servicing clients like Mickey in the old days and Charles Schwab and so on. In those days, uh, I mean, everybody hated the discount firms. No one wanted to do business with with the discount firms because they were the first ones that were driving prices lower. Uh, and the, but they were, they were drag kicking and screaming into the 20th century, so to speak. Uh, but they did, but they did make the changes, but it created a lot of issues, issues along the way. Well, and you sort of raise this question, which is, okay, commissions are almost nothing, um, and yet you're, you are a for-profit enterprise, and maybe we can bring Josh into it too. How do you guys make money then? Well, Today, basically, the big money on Wall Street is made by taking risk. Uh, that's where the, because, and that was sort of, firms were driven into that business, including us, uh, because if you couldn't make money charging commissions, uh, primarily because the, the rates were lower, as I said, and the, the infrastructure costs, particularly the technology and the regulatory infrastructure you had to have dealing with clients, uh, it, everyone said, listen, I, I might as well risk my own capital and trade. So the, if you looked at the earnings reports of the firms like Goldman Sachs or almost everybody today, any of the big and in, in large investment banks, the great majority of their income takes from, uh, comes from risk-taking. In other words, proprietary trading, put the, putting the firm's own capital, uh, providing liquidity to institutions or, or to individual investors, primarily inst- institutions. That's where the money is made. And, and is this something like when you're doing all this trading for other people, it, is that something that is – I've just never fully understood. Is that a completely separate operation? Is there information going back between people who are doing the trades and the ones who are taking the bets? Or Well, yeah. There's, I mean, there are Chinese, so-called Chinese walls that are required to be established at every brokerage firm so that – the, uh, there are in, what they call information barriers, is a better you know, term that most people would understand, to sort of wall off uh, a, a brokerage firm from taking advantage of information that he has as to what clients are basically going to trade or not going to trade. So there are separate, there are separate divisions within the firms, and, it's very, and it is uh, very, very uh, carefully enforced. Uh, and surveilled, so that there are these very. It doesn't mean there are not abuses for sure, but by and large, uh, it, it, you know, in today's regulatory environment, it's virtually impossible to to violate rules 
mean, this is something that the public really doesn't understand. And you, if you read things in the newspaper and you see somebody, you know, violate a rule, you say, well, you know, they're always doing this. But you, it's impossible for you to go under, for a violation to go undetected. Certainly not for a considerable period of time. Uh, and when you consider the volumes of trading, the trillions of, of dollars of trading that go on, uh, I mean, our firm, for example, alone, we trade in excess of $1 trillion a year. So, and that's one firm. You know, so you can, you, when you look at the scope of the trading uh, that goes on today in Wall Street and you look at the, what we would consider to be the infractions, uh, they're relatively small you know, primarily because, you know, of all the regulation. And most firms do try to comply with that. I want to get back to regulation in a bit, but I, I want to put Josh on the spot finally. Um, so basically, well, just describe what the heck you do. Okay, so uh, <laughs> the way I view market making um, is, you know, let's say you're, you're Joe Retail and you want to buy 100 shares of Citibank or something. So you give your order to your broker. And then your broker can either send that order to the New York Stock Exchange, at which point you, you trade against somebody. Somebody sells those shares to you. Or they can send it to another destination that will sell the shares because the broker isn't the one selling the shares. You know, you, you, For you to buy the 100 shares, somebody actually has to take the other side and to sell those 100 shares. So we're a destination that uh, brokerage firms route their order flow to, and then we satisfy the execution side of their customer order. And as a result... Um, you know, we're constantly being put into a portfolio of positions, long some stocks, short other stocks, as a result of the customer order flow. And so you have to manage that risk and, and work your way out of it. And, you know, that's sort of how I see the business of market making. And how did you end up, I mean, what is your background? What does one have to do to end up building these models? I, I, I took the wrong route, which was... Um, I started off actually. Did tell us this? Well, I, I still <laughs> yeah. was going to tell you in the interview. Um, I started. You went to the first firm and they asked if you had a PhD and you said exactly. no. Exactly. <laughs> and I didn't make that mistake. Um, but but I, I traded uh, bonds for a little while and then I went to a hedge fund and fixed income and another hedge fund and uh, um, I sort of left, went back to school briefly, participated in the uh, startup internet mania and, and when I finally sort of figured out that that wasn't going to work either. Um, I, I'd been working at a firm where our, our product was an automated system to internalize a brokerage company's order flow. So the idea was maybe instead of taking their order flow and, and, and routing it out to another destination for execution, maybe the brokerage company itself should be providing some of these executions to its customer. And it was a natural fit for um, Madoff because that's, that's their business, um, is, is the, you know, providing executions on, on order flow. And uh, you know, so I, I the, the we like many startups ran out of money in, in the crash. Um, you know, we were we were burning as fast as we could fund, and then the funding disappeared. And and so uh, I went out and talked to some of the people that we we talked to was, uh, while I was with the company, and uh, you know, Madoff, uh, Mar- uh, Mark Mark and Andy Bernie Sons brought me in and uh, gave me the opportunity to to build automation into their existing business. And, I mean, the way it, because, I, I, again, I, I visited Madoff, and it's, it's a very quiet place, um, considering all, I mean, you just think of the history of Wall Street, and or and even now still in the Chicago exchanges, all these people yelling. And, and I, I guess I'm just struggling with this idea. What is the idea that you're, humans are setting these policies? Like, okay, here's what we're trying to do, but then you let, 
the computers and the algorithms take over from there because they can do it much more efficiently on a case-by-case basis, and this is sort of for both of you. Well, let me, let me try and explain to you uh, how orders are handled. I think if we take a few minutes there, I think people will understand it, and you can look at the, the, the transition that occurred, you know, over, over the number of years. <clears throat> you know, if you, and I covered a little bit of this, this in the past, but let's, I think it's worth going back. Uh, you call the average person, you call your broker, whether it be Muriel Siebert and company or whether it be Merrill Lynch, and you say, buy me 500 shares of stock. And they, and depending upon whether the stock is uh, a NASDAQ stock or whether it's a listed stock, meaning a New York Stock Exchange stock, you will take it to either the, you could take it to either the floor of the exchange or you could take it to a dealer. Now also what's changed during this time is New York Stock Exchange stocks trade everywhere. They trade actually as much off the exchange as they do on the exchange, but that's sort of unimportant. The, so you, you, you put an order in, you call your broker, say, buy me 500 shares of stock, and they'll send that stock to the floor of an exchange, uh, either here, Europe, wherever, or they'll send it to a dealer, you know, what we call an upstairs trade. And that trade then, normally in the past, it got handled in a totally manual mode. If it went down to the floor of the exchange, you would you, everything you see, all these crowds on the floor. You, people would walk physically walk an order over to a specialist post, and they would say, "I'm looking to buy 500 shares of stock." And the specialist who was assigned to that stock would would execute the trade with them. Either he had an order from another person to put the orders together, or if he didn't have an order, he would risk his own capital to provide liquidity on on the other side of the transaction. Uh, if you did an over-the-counter trade. It was originally, going back, you know, pre-1970, it was done the same way. And then automation through computers started to come in to be able to use computer technology to make those orders, you know, handle, be handled more efficiently. And the average order that used to go on as late as 19, probably 80-something, mid-80s, with taking probably on the floor of an exchange, 20 to, you know, either somewhere between a, as fast as 20 seconds and as slow as two minutes, correct? I mean, I'm being as generous to my competitors, the exchange. Uh, that's how long an order took, took place. And it wasn't that much faster in the, in the dealer market until you made all these phone calls. But with automation, you know, uh, today our average turnaround time for orders is a tenth of a second. So we, we, for example, built linkages to all the discount firms in the early 80s where we provided technology so that a customer, and Charles Schwab, if you go back in those days, you remember they were on, I'm sorry, Mickey, I have to use Charles Schwab as an example, because they were the first client that we did this for. You could call, they had an ad where somebody was driving in a car and called up on a cell phone and said, buy me 500 shares of IBM. And, you know, then while he was within literally, you know, let's say six seconds, you would hear the ad would be, okay, the broker calling back on the cell phone, uh, you just bought your stock. And literally this happened in six seconds. now, on the floor of the exchange today, with the automation that they've done, you know, the, the, the time frame has also dropped. Maybe not to a tenth of a second, but certainly probably in the five-second range, you would say, Bob, turn around time. Okay. So that's a tremendous that, – that is that is the way orders got handled. In delivering an order from a customer, 
into the marketplace. So that's literally one half of the order because the customer wants to buy and sell. He, he has to get that order into the marketplace, whether it be an exchange or a dealer. What no one really knows or pretty much doesn't care about from the public standpoint is what happens to that order after that. What do they do? You know, no one really thinks about it because they, as long as they got their execution, they don't care what happened on the other side. And, of course, they want to make sure they bought it at the best price, which you're required to do by regulation today. What happens once the order gets delivered to either a specialist on the floor or to a market maker like myself is we have to determine what do we do with that order. If we have a ready buyer, that's the ideal situation, then we match it and we've made either the spread or we make commissions on both sides depending upon the structure of the firms. But if, and if we don't have, then we, we risk our own capital. All right, now. Where Josh comes in is, if you look at our firm as recently as, I would say, 10 years ago, uh, all of our orders were handled, they were delivered automatically into our firm. But what we did after that was a manual process, meaning the trader sat there, a mark, what we call a market maker or a trader, and we had, let's say, 100 traders sitting in one room, and they would make a decision, do I buy that stock you know, what, do I keep it or do I sell it out or do I hedge it? What do I do with that position? And, and the firm is at risk during this whole time, assuming he didn't have a ready buyer or a seller on the other side of the trade. Uh, what people did is because as profits started to become less and less, the commissions were less and less, firms couldn't afford to, to spend a lot of manpower in handling and processing these orders. So what we did was we built, we used technology to be able to handle the orders without individuals. So we built, as, as, as well as we automated the industry from the delivery side, we now had to automate it as how do, as how do we turn that order around, how do we make a profit on that order. And while, you know, it was great relying upon a very smart young person, and it was only young people because the average burnout time from a trader on Wall Street, you know, up until about 10 years ago, was literally six years. Nobody lasted on a trading desk for more than six years because the stress was, was so great. So we, what we did was totally automate the process, all right, uh, and provide a tremendous amount of information through technology to help the traders make decisions by giving them all sorts of news screens, all sorts of economic data or currency. If you go to a, to a trading firm today, they sit in front of 20 different information screens How can each. They How do they understand all that it all? In, yeah. I mean, I, saw, I see that whenever I You saw that if you, if you went to our firm. <laughs> They're young and they obviously don't digest all of it properly, which is why we hired people like Josh to say, okay, look, let's take the human factor out of the equation, you know. And some people, look, when we started our firm, not with me because I, I was happy enough to graduate college, you know, but then we, w we went through a period of time where we didn't hire anybody that didn't have an MBA because we felt that, you know, MBAs were, were the right people to have working for us. Thank you. The, you know, then we went through another stage where we said, actually it was my wife, you know, who said, why don't you hire, you know, math people? Why don't you go to MIT? 
and hire math people because if everything you're doing is related to algorithmic trading and those sorts of things, they're probably the best people. And that was true, but we didn't have much success with the people from MIT. They spent too, this has nothing to do with the, with the institution, I believe. They, they spend too much time thinking. <laughs> I understand that's not something you people want to hear, but uh, that's what happened. You could actually watch them. They would be delivered in order. They now own 1,100 shares of IBM, and you would see them. <laughs> and, and my brother and I and my sons would look at them saying, well, you know, you know, and they would say, I'm getting there. And by that, by that time, the price had moved usually against us. So we, we, we determined that the best thing for us, to, for us to do was basically to take the human being out of the equation. Now, there are two advantages in our industry. Number one, when you take the human being out of the equation, you solve your regulatory problems. Because the, 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 the nature of any human being, certainly anyone on Wall Street, is, you know, the better deal you give the customer, the worse deal it is for you. Because you're on the other side of the transaction. It's like, any, it's like going into any, any store. You know, this, the store sells you television at a higher price, they're going to make more money. They sell you the lower price, their profit, you know, goes down accordingly. So the, you know, as honest as you can find, you, you try and get people to, to, to be, there's this, this, this normal natural pull you know, that you have to deal with. So by, by taking the human being out of the equation to a great extent and turning it over to a computer to make the decision, uh, I guess you could, you could also program the computer to, to violate a regulation. <laughs> but we haven't gotten there yet. You know, the issue is, is by taking the human being out of the factor and putting someone like Josh to go back and, and run all sorts of algorithms, and he'll be a, can explain that to you because every time he tries to explain it to anyone of, in the Madoff family, we, you know, we walk out of the room after 15 minutes. Uh, but that, by doing Maybe that, we don't want him to do that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> by, by doing that, you were able to automate the process, and where today, just to give you an example of the scope of that, we were able to take a, an operation that, that had... Uh, probably going to ask me for a raise after this, <laughs> where we had, let's say, uh, 40 people, you know, doing 300,000 transactions a day, which is what our, our, our normal transaction count would be. Uh, we have a team headed by Josh and what, five people, six people? Yes, uh, seven, I guess. Okay, seven people, you know, handling that same thing that, that 50 people, you know, might, might have been involved in. And, th- and that's, this is uh, what all market-making firms, you know, do today. That's the way they operate. Well, so I'm going to ask this of both of you, but I'm going to start with Mickey. So this is great. We've gotten rid of all these irrational, flawed, error-prone, corrupt people, potentially so. Um, and, and also, I mean, just when you hear that old system of having to call up every single dealer, it's just, it, it's clearly much better in a lot of ways now. But... I mean, have we reached market nirvana? Are prices set perfectly now? Is the market any safer than it used to be? No, markets are still influenced by stories, by fashion trends. They're the same companies, but why are they selling twice as much six months from now or half as much? Uh, The public has changed the way they're doing, putting in their orders. Two-thirds of our orders every day are put in by the computer. 
of our retail trades. Right. Uh, which Do goes, people trade more frequently than they used to because of that? Or? Some yes, some no. We still have customers that want to talk to a broker. They pay more. They're very happy doing that. For the most part, they're larger accounts. But we do, there is, we don't cater to them, but there are the day traders today. And they're, uh, they're aggressive. And some of them blow themselves out of the water very fast and furious. And there are firms that cater to them. Uh, we have, for the most part, they're larger accounts. They're self-made people and they know the markets. Uh, what you lose on the commissions, because you don't make much money on the commissions anymore. They're a fraction of what they were. Uh, you're making in some of the others. You're making some of it on the money markets. Because, uh, yeah, there's some discount brokers that even offer zero commission trades in certain yeah, cases. Yeah, but right? they're making it up in fees. Right. They're making it up in so many different ways that the public doesn't see. But, uh, like, we, we're competitive on margins. And we have a pretty good margin uh, rates. But margin is when make, you're borrowing money to when buy When you're stuff. borrowing money. But the firm makes money on that. Not a lot per dollar, but it's a good source of income. As are some, some other products. Uh, we make money. I did something right ten years ago. We uh, took over the largest black-owned firm in municipal bonds. The founder left, hired Johnny Cochran, and uh, we created Siebert Branford Schenck. And we qualify. We were just appointed by California to senior manage a $2 billion deal. So we have done what we qualify either as a minority firm because of Branford and Shanker, we qualify as a woman-owned firm. And we have, because of myself and Suzanne Shank, and uh, uh, we've passed, I think we're number 15 nationally now, in terms of senior managed deals. So we've found niches in the marketplace. So, I mean, so... But you have to find a niche. Right, because the basic trading doesn't... The basic trading's changed. Well, then, so trading's faster, it's cheaper. But it's electronic. They get the quotes electronically. They can get level two. They can see who's bidding what. I mean, it's it's changed. I I guess I just want to ask Bob, faster, cheaper, also better? No. Why not? Yeah. Well, it's better in certain respects. And when you talk about the linkages, they can pull all the quotes together in one screen. I, I go back long enough where I was uh, remember going up to a broker's office and I had a bond and I wanted to sell it. And he called a, a dealer. I said, call another dealer. He calls another dealer. Try, try a third dealer. I mean, he's going through the telephone. That, that's terrible. Now, see, these linkages are much better. No question. Uh, technology, though, we keep forgetting, technology is neutral. It, it doesn't care. It can help you. It sure. can hurt you. It depends on how it's used. Now, I would like, if, if I could, to, to raise a question. Please. And that is, the question that we could all think of is, what is it that a marketplace does? 
You know, you can look at specific players in the marketplace and what each individual does, but what does the market do? Why do we need markets? Well, of course we need markets because if I want to buy something, I have to find somebody who sells it. But the transfer of ownership is trivial. Okay, it's necessary. You do it. But that's not the big problem. The big problem is finding the price to make the trades at. I come from a business school background, as does Elsa. We both trained in similar ways, and you can take our Corp Fin courses, our investment courses, and the like. It's all about give me information about a company. How do you value the company? And, uh, you know, give me growth rate, risk, all, all the, the discount rates, all that sort of stuff. What price do you put on it? You get the impression that you can value companies in that way. I suggest, Justin, you can't. And the reason why you can't is that we all look at this information about companies, and God knows there's a ton of it. It's, it's huge, it's complex, and it's imprecise. You look at it, and we come to different decisions. So where does price come from? If you do your best, you sharpen up your pencil, and you go through, and you figure out that stock's worth $32.12. Well, you got a hell of a sharp pencil if you can get it down to the 12 cents. But you come up $32, okay? And I say it's 42 and, and, and Josh says it's, it's, uh, it's 40 and, and, you know, we're all over the place. So where should it trade at? What is the price? That's what we need a market for. Now, when you come to the market, and if we're all... Is that a margin call coming up? <laughs> Not on Saturday. Oh, thank God. <laughs> well, you don't know, the market never sleeps. <laughs> yeah. Now, what was I saying? We, we all have our ideas and we come to the market. Think about it. The process of going from our individual assessments to a price that the thing is trading at is an integration process. We have to integrate our orders. How does that Because it's different happen? from a vote. I mean, it's, one way you get everybody to agree is everybody votes. And clearly a market is a different you way You vote with your dollars, yeah. and if you're bigger, you have more votes. Right. <laughs> but still, dollars vote. Each dollar is one impact. Okay? So you come together, and that's where I come in with market structure. Because if you view it as an integration process, how are your orders integrating the buyer sell? How does it come together to find a price? Well, technology helps, and you can get the orders in. But technology can do two things. It can compute. That's great. We call it a computer. It can also convey. It transmits orders. It transmits information. Now, if everybody else is walking at a certain speed and I can go faster, I'm better off. What's happened now is that the computer has sped it up for everybody. And what happens in a minute used to take an hour. Or you go back long enough a day. Now we go into, ooh, I can beat you by a minute. I can beat you by a second. I can beat you by a millisecond. It's so damn fast. But our standard market mechanism is called a continuous market. Start trading at 9.30, our standard hours here in the U.S. You start trading at 9.30 and you trade into 4. It doesn't mean that you continuously have trades. It means the market's continuously open. Anytime a buy meets or crosses a sell, boom, you got a trade. So it's stretched out. Now, when you talk about consolidation of orders, 
you can think of orders all being consolidated in the same trading venue, like the NYSE or Madoff or whatever. Receiver. But you handle, you're not a market maker. No. You handle it. But in, in any event, the typical view in all the regulatory discussions of, of consolidation is always spatial, one place. Time is a terribly important factor. And the orders get stretched out over time. Now, what we've done is with this rapid handling is we've compressed time. But at the end of the day, somebody's one order is going to come in before the other order. And, Josh, if, if you know you have to do it faster, the guys from MIT are thinking for five minutes. Now let the MIT guys think for a second. And they've missed it. So has in what way has technology helped us with that? Now, I have an analogy. That it, it, it's not kind to me, but it's, it still works. Uh, I go to a ball field. You see an exciting play. Uh, I, I don't want to bring up the Mets or Yankees. <laughs> the dismal play. But, you, you know, at every boom, a ball's hit. Everybody leaps to their feet because by doing it, you can, you can see better. No. I see worse because I'm shorter. I can see better, but everybody individually thinks that. You can't improve everybody by just the, the analogy to uh, height is how fast you get in there. Now, the order, the sequence in which things happen matter. It matters, and it's just like a horse race. And you know that you want to know. People bet on the horse. You want to know who crosses the finish line fast first. So you have so-called photo finishes. When you have a photo finish, you can say, ah, Horse A won by a nose. Well, now our cameras are so damn precise and our timing is so exact that you can say, Horse A won by a millinose. Is that good? Well, you have to find a winner with horses. And at some point, but with stock, can't we at some point say, you know, the, the, the secret, the milliseconds, there's no information in it. It really didn't matter. We're not using the computer right. If we could integrate these orders better, we'll get better prices. To find out about all that's happening at the intersection of science and culture, visit our website at scienceandthecity.org. 